Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is May the 12th. Um, lovely little day we've got for us here in Boston. Starting to heat up. Feels like summer's around the corner. Mother's Day this weekend. Uh, got any uh, Got any nice gifts for mom? Well, just a quick shout out to my mom, who is one of our biggest listeners and my biggest fan here. And so... Mom, appreciate you listening and all the support you've given to us over the last couple of years. And yeah, we'll be together Sunday. I think Ricky, actually, this two episodes in a row, our intro is going to be like this. But uh, we're actually going to go golfing as a as a family. Oh, excellent! Where are you hitting? Yeah. Parent parents took it up last summer. I took it up a few years ago. So if you had asked us even a year ago if this would be possible, it wouldn't be. So we're going to get out there together. It should be. We'll hope for for some nice weather, but it should be a good day. Excellent. Well, I hope you guys hit them well. How's your Mother's Day looking? Uh, my Mother's Day is great. I'll actually be spending it with my mother-in-law in Delaware. So I've got a little road trip ahead of us. Well, this is why we're recording this episode early, because this isn't going to come out for a week or so. But we got, we're got we trying to balance everyone's schedules here. That's it. Life is coming at you fast, as always. always what, do you, what do you got for the people this week? So May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And... It feels like mental health has been constantly in the news in recent weeks, months, years, in a way that it just wasn't before. And it's a conversation, it's a topic that has permeated so many of our discussions, Ricky, and it seems to be one of those things that comes up frequently every couple of episodes, whether it's with a guest or just with you and I, we're talking about it, it's mental health is this issue. And so we're going to focus this whole episode on mental health, and it's not nearly enough time to spend on an issue like this, but it's, we felt it worth it to carve out this block of time and just focus on mental health. And to do that, we're going to be joined by Wendy Marbell Napoleon, who is a graduate student uh, researcher here in Boston. She has done research on the impacts of social media on the mental health of youth and adolescents. And so she'll talk kind of particularly about that subject, but we're going to expand that conversation to more mental health writ large, because it's just, like I said, it's just something that keeps coming up. People keep talking about mental health. I was watching President Trump's town hall in New Hampshire the other day, and he got a question about gun rights. And he said, well, we don't have a gun problem in this country. We have a mental health problem in this country, which is a very debatable statement. But even if even if you buy that statement, the question that becomes, okay, all right, say I accept that. So what? What are we going to do about that then? And I think that's hopefully where we're going to drive this conversation. Um, Wendy Morell is going to tell us a little bit about her research and her methods, but then ultimately, it's, it, that's so what that we really are trying to get into this episode. So I'm really excited to have her on. I think she's going to be just give us a lot of knowledge that you and I don't necessarily have, and that'll help ground our conversation and our potential like policy recommendation. Yeah, really looking forward to this this conversation obviously everybody has mental health and it's one of those things that you know you know when you broke a bone but it's hard sometimes to tell when things are not going so well for you or you know when you're not when your mental health is not all all there um and so yeah i'm really looking forward to hearing what what she's finding out And before we bring Wendy Rebell on, uh, we'll remind everyone that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. And if you're someone that is maybe feeling a little lonely or anxious about conversation topics, and sometimes we all are, maybe particularly me, Ricky, I'm not as, not as smooth as you in a crowd and trying to make conversation, but... The guys over at Cannon Hill want to remind you that a Cannon Hill table is a great conversation starter. That, that I'm sure it is. 
So check those guys out. Uh, whether or not you need conversation starters, everyone could use some nice furniture in their house. Uh, so give those guys a shout and let's bring on Wendy Rebel. Let's do it. We are now very excited to welcome Winnie Marbell Napoleon onto the program. Uh, Winnie Marbell is, as I mentioned, a graduate student here in Boston who has been researching mental health in general and the effects of social media on adolescent mental health in particular. And so she's really a subject matter expert in this area. And Ricky and I are thrilled to hear her what she's been doing in her research and her findings and her recommendations. Um, we, we think we're going to learn a lot and hope people out there will too. So um, Wendy Marbell, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We, we, we certainly appreciate it. We're excited, honestly. Um, so I just want to start with, before we get into your research, is why were you motivated to, to research this field and why mental health for you? Um, I think because as being such a taboo topic that, almost everyone is battling with these days. I thought that it was appropriate. Um, And to kind of just break down that wall, I have my own personal experience with my day-to-day with mental health, rather it's juggling my own or those in my life that I love. Um, And so I thought that this is something that needs to be focused on. I think it's a multifaceted issue and simply addressing mental health, we'd be addressing a slew of things that's kind of covering the news right now. Two really interesting points there. One, that mental health, and Ricky and I talk about this, is so intertwined with so many other things, whether we're talking about gun violence or like homeless issues or substance abuse issues, like in like crime, you know, like all of these things that we talk about as these big issues, mental health is like a common thread through so many of them. Uh, but it's also like a massive field, just like when we talk mental health, it's, there's so, like you said, so many facets to it. So how did you, I guess, narrow down like the the field or the the research that you wanted to do? So the research I did, I focused primarily on youth. I think that that is the most impressionable population. And when you look at who some of these social media platforms target, unfortunately, it's this demographic. Um, And so when I looked at some findings from the UK, where they asked 14 to 24 year olds, you know, what their presence on social media was, you find that this demographic in particular dominates social media platforms. Um, And then when you ask them a question regarding their mental health, like, you know, around anxiousness and depression, this same demographic um, disproportionately answers yes to having felt anxious or depressed. Um, So, and I think that COVID in the last like three years, it's been so long already, but like did not help either, Um, you know, for let's say elementary to middle schoolers overnight, they watch their day-to-day change drastically with little to no explanation. And so as adults, I know how that impacted us, but taking it a step further and understanding and seeing how it impacted that generation um, in that group of people, and then add into account how social media became that bridge, that kind of gap, that uh, disconnect that they were experiencing, but all the things they were exposed to on these platforms that, again, affect mental health. So mass shootings, um, things Political subjects matter. Um, You have, again, the whole discussion around mental health as well, where the students who were a part of Sandy Hook, right, who watched their friends die are now, you know, older now. And they have TikTok where they can share their stories. And again, they're still exposed to the news media of the same thing happening over again. And in my opinion, I was only in, um, I want to say, late middle school, early high school when Sandy Hook happened. And I remember being horrified. Um, And now I'm an adult, I'm a graduate student, and this has become a day-to-day norm. Um, When is enough enough? Um, And again, social media is great. You know, we're able to learn somebody else's grandma's cookie recipe. um, But on the side of that same token, it could be terrible where someone can go out and do something horrid and stream it to 12 people. And this is in regard to, I believe, the Buffalo shooting. Um, But they stream it to just 12 people on Twitch. And then later on, it is shared to hundreds of millions. Uh, and I think that that's, again, and, and jumped out to me in my research. And I wish more people were talking about it, especially um, in regard to the youth, because one day they sit in the seats we're sitting in. Yeah. So can you what what exactly was your kind of the research question that you set out to try to answer? 
So I wanted to see specifically how social media is interfering with the growth and development of middle and high schoolers. At first, my research stopped at a, high, uh, at a middle school, so I actually went back to my old middle school, and I did an in-class activity. This was only about 22 students, but um, and then I eventually did the whole school where I had 250 participants. But just to quickly summarize the 22 students, I did what I called a starburst activity. And for each of the four starburst color was a question. So for the pink one, I asked them a favorite song. The red one was the intentional question where I asked them what they love about themselves. Then the plans for the weekend and a uh, favorite subject in school. Now, of the 22 students, 7%, so about 30, or excuse me, seven students, so about 31%, told me that they loved nothing about themselves. So there was absolutely nothing they loved about themselves. Again, of these 22 students, um, I asked, are they on social media? Only one student of that in that class did not have social media. So when asked, have they ever felt anxious or depressed? 81% said yes. So again, with just 22, I saw this and I was like, I need to, I need to see what this whole school is dealing with. Um, and so those were like the driving forces. And as I developed the survey for the entire school, I asked things around if they watch the news, where they get their news. Um, do they feel supported in their school? I actually also asked the stakeholders, in this case, for the teachers and educators, but if they felt like that their school district prioritized youth mental health. They say yes, but how the students answered the question told me something totally different. So you you alluded to this because as, as you were talking, I was like, "What's how much is like social media responsible for? Like, what's the correlation between social media and these feelings of anxiousness and depression that seem to be far more prevalent in today's youth as opposed to like, not that they didn't exist amongst people who are older, but like is more prevalent today. Ricky and I talk about this a lot, especially when we reflect on September 11th when we were we were young, but we were we were aware, but we were also super naive. We just like our world was so sheltered because we just like didn't know. And I and sometimes I think that like middle schoolers today know so much that in in a good way they're so aware of like the world and of different people and cultures in a way that I just wasn't as a middle schooler. And I'm like in some ways I'm jealous of that, but then. I think what you're pointing to is like the flip side of that coin is if like you're constantly getting inundated with news on TikTok, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, wh wherever it might be, any of these places, that's overwhelming for anybody, let alone someone that's 11 to 14 years old. Well, yes, exactly. And, and, and I think that's the challenge that um, social media has kind of exasperated is that desensitization, right? So where I always fault the media, a problematic take, right? Where I always fault the media is, after a mass shooting, it is a 48-hour news cycle. I'm not even going to call it 24 hours. And this thing is on replay, and then you have snippets of it on TikTok, and then the average Joe gives their two cents on it and why this shouldn't happen and so on and so forth. And so that inability to disconnect. And again, back to my early point where people could live stream anything, including mass murder. And so then that becomes replayed and... And imagine what that's doing to a child. Again, I, I asked them, do you watch the news? Why or why not? And my favorite answer from a sixth grader was, no, I'm a kid, because that's true. But then on the side of that same token, you have sixth graders that say that they watch the news to stay informed of what's happening. But on a grimmer take, they watch the news so that if a mass shooting happens at their school, they know what to do. They're, they're kids. They should not be worried about playing dead and parents should not be buying backpack, bulletproof backpack inserts to send their kids to school. Um, I think that we've strayed so far away um, from the subject matter at hand when it comes to mental health and, and how that ties into gun violence, where again, gun violence is the number one cause of death among children in America. That's a problem. And unfortunately, as much as we'd like to think that kids are naive and they're not paying attention, they are. And they are going to one day grow up to be adults that judge um, the system that they're going to inherit. So, I mean, I, I, I really wish that um, with each mass shooting that they didn't cover it and say, oh, my God, how did this happen? What can we do? Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers aren't doing a damn thing. Um, it, thoughts and prayers are better when they're not being um, 
broadcasted. I think if you're going to send thoughts and prayers to a family, do it in private rather than putting it on the news and, and then nothing gets done. Um, and on a more political level, I think as those of us that are registered to vote, we need to begin holding our leaders more accountable um, because the reality of it is our children are dying, our children are scared, and our children need to feel that they're being heard and supported. You know what I mean? Um, because this is scary for them. And it's unfortunate that even in districts that have not experienced such um, traumatic activities, uh, again, around mass shootings, but they're preparing for it. So even having what we call the, sh the mass shooter drill, the shooter drill, that is desensitizing because why are we preparing our kids to get, to get shot, to get shot at? Like, I, 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 I understand it needing to be done because of what's taking place in, in the country, but that should be warning signals to everybody that this is not okay. Why are we preparing our children to possibly die? Why are we telling our, you know, why do kids know that if their classmate were to get shot, they should then take some of that blood off their classmates, smear it on themselves and play dead. Is that how far we've come as a nation where this is okay? Where, you know, people on board sit down and say, yep, let's, let's do a school shooter drill this year and next year and the year after that, rather than, you know, holding our leadership accountable and saying, this needs to stop, you know, like we need to do something about this because it's not okay. And, 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 you know, people will like to say this is their second amendment, right? And the issue is not you not having a gun. The issue is that I want my kids to be able to, to go to school and not fear getting blown to smithereens. You know, that's the bottom line. I think that, you know, we all have the right to live a long, healthy life. And it's unfortunate that, again, there's a whole population whose lifespan is being cut in half um, around something that I think we all should be on the same page on and how we address it, um, because lives are at stake. I mean, I 100% agree, retweet all the way. The, I guess maybe some, some of my questions um, would be, like in your research, is was gun violence one of the things that really like jumped out as kind of a source of anxiety and depression? Were there other things? I know when we talk about social media, we're often talking about body image or, you know, what I have and, you know, what everyone else is sort of displaying as their life, their curated life or whatever. So that comparison problem that social media creates. I'm curious if in your research that like a, a big source of anxiety and depression in youth, if you were able to kind of tie it to gun violence. And I guess that question is in like, I don't know if it's in contrast, but in some ways, social media has a lot of problems and also has some benefits that are undeniable. But in many, like the main ability of it is to sort of amplify these stories. And so it may not be the source of the cause. It may just be exacerbating the issue. Wonder how like your research kind of looked at that. Yes. Yeah, so in my assessment of their worldview, I asked them two separate questions, again, same side of the token. So what do they think is going right in the world? And what do they think is going wrong in the world? So this is 250 middle schoolers, seventh, uh, sixth to eighth grade. And they point out in regards to what's going wrong in the world, they mention racism, climate change, shootings, and shootings included shootings within their own community, but specifically shootings in schools. Most of them, 16% uh, said everything. So everything that I just mentioned, that's included. And then there's another 7% that say war. So they, word for word, point out a lot of, again, what we as adults see in the news cycle. And the fact that they mentioned school shootings to me in particular is very telling. But in regard to going back to my question of why they watch the news, why or why not, um, again, a sixth grader said no, because they have horrible things that happen like shootings. And for me personally, that's uncomfortable to hear about. Um, and then you have an anonymous eighth grader that says, not really. I get anxious when hearing about school shootings and everything that happens in schools. So they know that this is happening and they see it. And again, while a lot of the coverage starts on our TV, um, being able to take that snippet and putting it on TikTok or, or Instagram or Facebook, they see it. You know, it's a, it's almost like understanding the algorithm, right? So if this is the content that they watch and say, for example, they watch one video covering a mass shooting, 
And then they jump down a rabbit hole and click another. And then down that rabbit hole, they click another. Then they sign off and then they get back on. It's more than likely when they sign back on, they'll see some type of subject matter still covering mass shooting. So I think in, in, in me understanding my algorithm, um, I got tired of seeing tabloids on my TikTok. You know, I could care less about what the rich are doing, right? And so I started in, in my own little nerd way. I'm like, I want to see how I can kind of make my timeline show me what I want to see. And so I was only watching cooking videos, makeup videos, get ready with me. And then I signed off. And the next day when I got back on, that was what I was watching. Now I did something completely different. I said, let me see if I could change this algorithm. And then I started doing things around wanting to see spoken word and I wanted to see um, dog videos and I wanted to see what what's Rue eating today? You know, those little like what babies are eating for, for dinner and lunch. And again, my algorithm changed. So take that into account of a child rather than watching other kids play with their toys or their, you know, again, watching the actual news. Their algorithm is going to continue to feed them that. And that brings me back to my uh, point of desensitization. Um depending on what they're exposed to, uh, it definitely plays a role into what they view of the world. So again, even though this tragedy has not come directly to their community, they're still afraid of it because in their back of their heads, it's happening in communities that I've seen on TikTok. What makes my community any different? Yeah, we talk about that a, uh, a lot in that, right? I think a big argument for folks who like to tell the Second Amendment is that of all gun violence and of shootings in general, mass shootings, although they are on the rise, still represent a relatively small proportion of gun violence. But this idea of like the collateral damage that while isolated incidents of gang violence or um, suicide, while those are like are are tragic uh, in their own right, they don't have this same ability to impact kids in other towns because they don't necessarily relate to those kids who, you know, just went to school that day. And I think that that, I, I feel like that angle of why tackle mass shootings over like focusing on, you know, other types of gun violence is, is this idea that like it's pervasive in its impact, even if the relative number of people who die by mass shootings is small in the, in the big scheme of how many people died by gun violence in the United States. Right. Yeah, Ricky, it, it, it's almost like uh, like terrorism in some ways, where the, the object of it isn't necessarily like only the act itself, but the, the mass fear that it causes. And I don't think many mass shooters are necessarily like that's their object, but that's essentially what it's doing to people, like what you were saying and like the effect that it's having on people. That's a really interesting point in terms of why prioritize that type of gun violence. But um, when you were I want to go back to like your research just around social media, I feel like we've gotten down a, a very specific rabbit hole of like uh, social media and gun violence, which is obviously a, a very much intertwined. But can you talk a little bit about your findings about the amount of time that kids are spending on like their devices? And because we talked about uh, not being able to disconnect and not and be, that leading to desensitization. So um, what'd you find around, around that data? I'm actually happy you asked. So um I was shocked. So again, 250 respondents. I asked, do you have social media? Simple yes or no question. 91.6% responded yes versus the 8.4 who said no. Um, and then I asked, how much time do they spend on social media a day? Um, only 30% said less than three hours. Whereas you had 15%, or excuse me, well, you had 18% that said 12 or more hours which I'm like, you're supposed to be in school for eight of those hours. So how is that possible? Um, and then you have the remainder who said they spent anywhere between four to 12 hours on social media. Um, and then to kind of just draw a parallel, I reiter reiterated the question of have you ever felt anxious or depressed? Again, to, to reiterate, of 250 respondents, 63.2% say yes. So these kids are spending a crazy amount of time on social media. Um, for comparison, I had asked the teachers if they allow cell phone use in their classrooms. This is a relatively smaller middle school, uh, so I got only 16 teacher respondents. But again, 87.5% say no, but still, they're still able to spend so much time on social media. So what I from what I remember being in middle school, for the phones we did have, you know, they weren't iPhones just yet, but 
we were still able to sneak and use our phones in class. So I suspect that may be one of the reasons why, but I'm also suspecting that they're probably spending a lot of time on their phone when they're not at school, right around bedtime. I have younger siblings and my Nana is always complaining that it's like one, two, three in the morning and they're on their phones and they're on their Xboxes. Um, but for just to kind of show what they're spending their time on and what platforms they're using, um, I asked them, you know, what kind of social media platforms are they using? Um, the number one platform amongst these students in particular was TikTok with 80.8% using TikTok. Um, then we have Instagram with 53.3%. Then we have Snapchat at 32.4% and then Twitter at 34%. Um, only 8.8% of these students do not have social media. <laughs> um, and that's, again, very much in line with what I've seen with studies done in other countries, where more likely than none, this demographic has a social media presence, is on the platform, I mean, in regard to self-image and, and, and how they view themselves, again, going back to my question, one thing you love about yourself. Um, again, it was only 22 students, but the, the seven that told me absolutely nothing stuck with me. And they actually continued to push my research because I, the first question in my head would be, why would they love nothing about themselves? But of course, it would be challenging to find something to love and adore and admire about your own life and yourself when, again, you're spending all this time on social media where people are only showing you the good parts of their lives, not the rest, relatively the bad things or, you know, and it being unable to disconnect. So you do have that school vacation. Maybe your school vacation is you staying at home with your parents and your, and your siblings so you guys can't afford to take an extravagant vacation, whereas your classmate went to Disney and they have all these videos and then they probably went to Mexico and they have all these videos and they're showing you all the good things. Um, you know, it's, it's comparison. It's being stuck in comparison mode. People are doing this and I can't do this. It's, you know, young women in particular, young girls in particular wanting to fit into this standard of beauty that is not real standard of beauty. You know what I mean? Um, I'm not going to mention celebrities by name where I really want to, but you have a slew of women in Hollywood that portray this false sense of beauty that they've only been able to acquire because they have money, because they can buy those features. And so they get on platforms like Instagram, which again, 53.3% of these students are using, 53.2, uh, excuse me, percent of these students are using, and they see these women in their bodies and their face and their chiseled chins and all of that. And they begin to think that that is the real standard of beauty. Um, and there's research on it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Anyone could jump down this rabbit hole after this podcast, but around how many young women are getting body modification surgeries. Um, I'm not bashing women that do, you know, cosmetic surgeries, you know, do whatever you want. It's your body, your choice. Um, but I think in regard to what it's doing to a younger population, it's telling them that if there's something about you that you don't like, if you have money, you can go ahead and change it. What's even more dangerous is when you add on the cosmetic work and then you add on a filter and then you post that and then a 13, 14, 15 year old sees it. They think that this standard of beauty is correct. This is what I should look like. This is what I should aspire to look like. And nobody's telling them that that standard of beauty is terribly inaccurate. I've seen a few of um, these very beloved celebrities in person, rather it is from a distance, but I've seen them in person and they do not look like that in person. <laughs> um, and so there's, again, other countries where in their magazines, on their billboards, in their platforms, they literally say, this photo has been Photoshopped. Um, Eventually, I would like to see something like that done here. Um, and it's not to make anybody look bad. It's to just give people, as predict, specifically, excuse me, young women and people the support and understanding that how you look is okay. You are beautiful as your authentic, natural self. You do not need to fit into the standard of beauty that you're seeing on television, that you're seeing on social media platforms, because unfortunately, but fortunately, these are not real standards of beauty. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I saw a, a C, the CDC did a 
a study on this that came out earlier this year was high school students. And I think there was 17,000. And of those 17,000, 30% of girls, uh, young women said they had seriously contemplated suicide in the last year. And 57% said they were like conscious, uh, had constant feelings of anxiousness and depression. And I think your study is adds on to it, but it, it trickles down to like younger and younger ages, un- unfortunately. So again, like we started this conversation by saying that like mental health, social media, these are just such like massive all encompassing things uh so what do you have like conclusions so you you can you come up with all this data what do you like now what no (laughs) um i actually really enjoyed how this semester rolled out for me because for each class i was taking i was almost able to just do even my policy proposal um and so towards the end of the survey I specifically asked these students their interests because in seeing how much time they're spending on social media, the first part of my solution was figuring out how do we take a little bit more time from social media and actually make sure they're doing something more constructive. So just working backwards, only 1.6% said that they had no interests or hobbies and while 0.8% said they go outside. But in looking at some of what they like to do, we have cooking, we have the arts, we have fashion, we have sports, we have health and wellness, and we have gaming. So I also asked them what they want to be as a kid versus growing up. Looking at my survey now, they are still kids. But, um, you know, what they wanted to be at four years old is not now what they want to be at 10. Um, but with taking those answers, there were there was parallel there. So what I ask and beg and plead for in my policy proposal is investing in mental health period. And that's going to look at including provisions in the school year where at the beginning of the school year, we have what's called a mental health week. For me in undergrad, what that looked like, they called it stress busters. And it always took place right around finals, but It would be a week where we would have breakfast for dinner. We would have a bingo night. We would have um, masseuse would come on campus. Different um, leaders would come in and speak to us and things of that nature. But that whole week was devoted to stress relief. It was devoted to catering to mental health. Um, And so doing this for me, I think it would be beneficial for this particular middle school that I went into. But all middle schools throughout the Commonwealth, it would give the students an opportunity at the beginning of the school year and at the end of the school year to de-stress. And within that week, they could, again, bring in different yoga specialists. They can bring in different vendors, you know, cooking vendors do a cooking class with the kids. They can, you know, expose them to different things that they themselves wouldn't have gotten exposed to, but that they have obviously voiced interest in and kind of giving them that support and an outlet to do something off of social media. Um, But then I call for bring back career days on a more community level of exposing again these kids to people whom are in positions that they aspire to be in one day or that they might not have considered yet. It's kind of again motivating and and adding color to their minds and showing them that there's more to the world than what they're seeing on Twitter and Facebook. Um, I also ask that kind of again uh, on a more broader level, that they bring back electives focusing on the arts, wellness, coding, and cooking, specifically because in my experience in being in public schools, when budget cuts come, the first things that go is the arts. Um, The arts saved my life, again, to kind of break down the taboo in mental health in my community. Um, The arts saved my life. If it wasn't for writing, if it wasn't for painting, I don't know who I would be. I don't know how far I would have gone um, because in the things that I've seen and the things that I've experienced in my lifetime, it'd be enough to make someone go crazy. Um, And so having had the writing and the creativity gave me that outlet to write down or even draw down the things that I couldn't say out loud or the things that I don't think anyone would understand. So really investing into that and making sure that when budget cuts happen, that the arts and, and, and the wellness programs are okay. Um, there are studies out there that, that that could prove and that I could provide that show that this stuff works. Um, then I really, really would recommend really allocating funding towards covering the cost for mental health counselors for students, but also for the educators as well. Um, again, when you look at other countries like Finland, they invest in their educators. The educators that I've, I've spoken to have shared that 
the pandemic has created challenges for themselves and their students where the students came back and they recognized a drastic change in their students. So it's supporting them. Um, I went to a high school that had thousands of students. And for each of the four buildings, there was one counselor. Um, for a school of that size, funding needs to be allocated where there could be two counselors at least per building where that one person isn't drowning in work, but the students have that additional support. And finally, it would be appointing a social and emotional learning officer for each district um, to just kind of make sure that there's somebody overlooking and actually um, making sure that the youth of the Commonwealth's mental health is a priority. And again, it's not one of those things that a new administration can come in and put on the back burner um, because this is important. And I think if if my research has said anything and has shown anything is that there is money to do this. Um, in my policy proposal, I outline it. There's money to do this. And there is there's a desire to do it. Um, I, I, for what I understand, this incoming administration does have mental health as something that's front and center of their mind on, on what they could do about it. But again, I truly believe with mental health being such a multifaceted issue, as we covered at the beginning, um, addressing youth mental health in particular will help us to um, cover a lot of grounds before things get worse than what we've seen now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think so much mental health is a great example of like the have to attack problems at their at their root and like we can't when we look at so many of would come back to like mass shooting stuff so many of these are are perpetrated by people that are like 18 to 23 years old they're just really kids themselves and so like uh, you would think you know how, how do we maybe avoid some of these things in addition to like the gun laws that you were talking about but like investing in investing in our kids to make sure that they're not in that place themselves i do have i guess one final question for you I don't know if you came across this in your research, but Utah passed a bill, like, I think at the beginning of April, that it was the first, like, social media law that any state had passed. Ricky, I don't know if you saw this either, but what it did, it set some limits on, on like, social media use by, use by youth in Utah. And it required anyone under 18 to get parental consent to join social media platforms. It forced those platforms to give access to the parents of these children. So if they're they're posting pictures or um, words or whatever it is, that's the, you, the parents can see it. And finally, it set a, a, a curfew, like a social media curfew that like it, had, it was like a hard stop at this you know, 10, 10 p.m., whatever it is. And that goes so anywhere about your, your point about kids staying up all night on, on social media. Um, and it, so it's, it's set to take place next year. I mean, I, I have questions about how it's going to be enforced. But let's 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 table those for a minute and just talk about it big picture wise. Because if I'm a tech company, if I'm a social media company, I'm pushing back a little bit on all of this stuff and say like, look, we're not forcing kids to be on this 12 hours a day. Like we're we're just providing a platform. And as we all acknowledge, social media has a ton of good where people that are able to connect with other people. Often it's people in marginalized communities where you might not see someone in your community that is the same gender or sexuality or going through the same things that you are, but you can connect with a community out there. And now we're limiting that, not to mention like, are there free speech rights here? Where like, as a 17 year old, like now I have to turn over my, my thoughts to my parents. I'm like, so I'm just curious what you about. I know I just threw this at you, but like, what's your take on legislation like that? I think legislation like that is helpful, but I also believe that parents have a responsibility in monitoring how much time their children are spending on social media. So me personally, as the oldest sister and the second in command after my mother, um, on my phone right now, I have an app where if I if I determine my brothers are spending too much time on social media, I just go ahead and I cut it off. I just hit a little button and the Xbox not working. Oh, my God, I can't get on Twitter. What's going on? Because you spent 15 hours on it <laughs> in the last 24 hours. Um, and so I think that it definitely it starts at home. But I think that with legislation also taking this stance, it's very important because I believe and I can only only give my opinion. But I think if this is not addressed soon, it's going to get worse. Like yeah. anything that's not addressed, it's going to get worse. And so, again, just to reiterate, I think this is something that starts at home. Um, I think so long as you're living on problematic opinion, 
So long as you're living under your parents' roof, you have to follow their rules. I don't think that there's any reason why anyone under the age of 16, I'll just say that under the age of 16, should be on a social media platform um, without adult supervision. Because there are a lot of things on there that I believe young minds should not be exposed to. But to take it a step further, a lot of not so friendly people also on those platforms um, that people's children could be exposed to unbeknownst to them. Um, And I think that people who have the intent to harm kids have gotten more and more smarter on the ways that they can do so. And I think the lack of parents who are aware on how these platforms could be used or the different ways their kids can hide what they share or don't share, um, what that could really do and what that could really look like. So again, legislation is good, but it starts at home. Yeah, I mean, I, that, again, as Ricky said, which I thought was ironic, retweet. Uh, so like in our whole social <laughs> media conversation, then we're like, our, it's like literally in our language now, our vocabulary like, retweet. Uh, but I, yeah, all right. Um, that's that's all we got. What else? Is there is there anything else that you wanted to say, like coming out of your research that that stuck that has stuck with you um, and that's going to continue to drive you forward in, in your own research and career? Yeah, like for now, I, I again, those students have not left me. I'm actually going to go back to the school and kind of thank them for how they've kind of reminded me what my mission is. And my mission has always been supporting and advocating for women and children. But for right now, I see myself honing in on the children. Um, they need more and more advocates and more and more people need to be talking about this. And something I forgot to mention in regard to my policy proposal, um, but part of what I call for is um, to hold the Department of Mental Health more accountable just for their lack of visibility to the population. So I went on the site as well during my research to kind of see what they have there. And for me, it was kind of hard to navigate because it's like, what do I click? What do I look for? So if there is someone from DMH listening, maybe consider developing and marketing a website or phone application to support this population um, because they need it. And I'm here. I would love to talk to anyone who is a lawmaker and who is a force of change to kind of get this work done. Because at the end of the day, I believe as stakeholders, we all benefit when our younger generations are thriving mentally and emotionally so we let's all get on it. <laughs> that's that's beautifully said. Couldn't couldn't agree more. And so thank you uh, for your knowledge, your expertise on this, and also like your opinions. I think it's 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 valuable. Like we all have opinions, but it's nice when you can ground them in research and be like, because I saw this, I realized like how big of a problem it is. And it's it's sometimes it's hard to conceptualize, but I think I appreciate you bringing like the data to this to then be like, this is why it's so urgent that we do something. So uh, thank you. I appreciate you joining us and giving us your time and, and expertise. Thank you for having me. This was lovely. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, that was a really interesting conversation with uh, Wendy Murbell. It was really it, like, I mean, obviously, I think everyone is aware of social media's like impact on their own lives in terms of time spent and uh, how you know viewing different things kind of makes you feel. But it's it's a little bit challenging to sort of put words to to some of those feelings, and I can only imagine even more challenging for younger people to to deal with and process all like you said all this like information that they get inundated with and um the yeah it was it was it was interesting to hear her findings and like the more she talked through it the more I was realizing like wow this is like a very difficult subject to get like real data on um to try and find like these like root causes so that th- there's a lot to unpack there before we jump in i wanted to um as you were talking about this new policy proposal or actual po- law in utah yeah it was signed into law i believe beginning of april but it's set to take effect next year yeah the um i didn't think about it at the time but it sort of r- rung a bell for me um do you know where else a law like this might be in place no so in 2021, 
China actually implemented a like social media. Oh yes, okay, yeah, I did hear that. Yes, because it was the gamers there were were furious. Yeah. Yes, they were because they were doing like all night, like twelve, fourteen hours a day, and yeah. I think like a lot of those like you know very talented esports folks come yes. out of China, but I'm sure it's a lot of like how many hours a day can you put in to get good at that? And anyways, yeah, they like basically forced the gaming companies to really limit how much um, people could play. And then I think they did similar stuff to uh, like the Chinese versions of TikTok and obviously Facebook's not allowed there, but um, the Chinese version of TikTok. Yeah. (laughs) No, no, it's got a different name or something, or maybe that's what TikTok translates to in Chinese. I'm not sure. But anyways, yeah, with like very firm time limits And then they got to like, the kids have to take breaks in between. And I think, I mean, I've heard rumors about, you know, the Chinese government having influence on like what algorithms show younger people that they like force the companies to show more happy stuff and creative stuff and things that they think will sort of prepare their youth to be kind of either better citizens or more productive or whatever in the future. So it's interesting to have something like that come out of China and then, you know, something like what you're talking about come out of a very Republican Utah. Which maybe shows that this is a bipartisan issue that like we all recognize and President Biden talked about it in his State of the Union thing. But like we could probably count on one hand the amount of times mental health. This may be his first time ever that's been brought up in a State of the Union address. This is something that we all realize is a crisis. And that, Ricky, to me, this is one of those don't knock the solution just because of the source, right? Like I spend a lot of time criticizing China and I do think there are like legitimate like first amendment issues that could crop up here, but also like, that's not this, this isn't like the worst idea for me. And it's, it's like so many of these problems, like you said it beautifully last episode, when you say so many of these problems that seem intractable, but aren't really that intractable, right? Mental health. It's like, okay, we're all talking about it, but it just feels so overwhelming to do things about it. But like when you were, what, what you were really saying is like, no, we can do things. And like this one thing isn't going to solve it, but like this one thing in conjunction with five, 10 other things, maybe it helps until all, we can't, like you said last episode, you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. And so like why this this law in Utah might not be perfect. Like I said, it might not even really be enforceable. I don't hate, like, what, what do we want from our legislators to try to like solve problems, not shrug your shoulders? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, yeah, absolutely correctly said. I There's, at some point you if you don't know the solution, it doesn't mean you don't do anything. It means you try different stuff out and maybe you iterate on it. And yeah. yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. I think something else that you touched on at the beginning of this episode, that was, you know, this idea of children today being so much more informed than we were. And, you know, when they can, they can talk about, I mean, kids at in sixth to eighth grade saying climate change is something that they are worried about. Like I would have had literally zero idea of what that meant um, as a sixth grader, not just because it was like not in the news, but because as you were saying, like, it's just not something we did that much. We knew what our friends were up to and that was like about it and stayed in our, our little bubble. I'm, I'm, I think something like this that I'm curious about, is like, I wonder if she does this study again in five years, what the, what the change is going to be. And I like wish we had more opportunities or that we had been asking kids about mental health like years ago so that we could sort of see what it looked like over time, because it was not something, I mean, ask a eighth grader when we were in eighth grade about if they have depression, you'd be like, what's depression? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. And that's, again, not to say that it didn't exist. And like, there's, I think, you know, the, the pro side of mental health being more in the news is that when people have like legitimate mental health issues, hopefully you're more comfortable talking about it and you can articulate it better because it's not just like, oh my goodness, I feel sad all the time. It's like, oh, I actually, I have terms for something like this. But it, on the other hand, it feels like with many of these things, the more attention they get, the more people are like, oh yeah, like I have that. And it's like, it's like that that's tricky too, you know? Uh, one thing I did want to, uh, do you have anything you want to add there? No, go ahead. No, all right. All right. So one thing I, I do want to bring up is uh, the U.S. Surgeon General at the beginning of 
this month, again, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, wrote an article in the New York Times that I thought was really interesting. So the U.S. Surgeon General's job is to be the chief advocate for public health and just like sound like the warning signs of public health issues that they are seeing across the, the country. And the the title of the article was um, like that lo- loneliness poses a profound public health threat. And it's one, it's, it's another one of those things, Ricky, that you're like, loneliness, really? Like that's, but what, what his findings showed was that more than half of U.S. adults experience loneliness, which has consequences for mental health, physical health, obviously can lead to depression, anxiety, but it also can lead to like an increased risk of heart disease and stroke and dementia. And what he was saying is that they, they actually did do some research from 2003 to 2020 the amount of time that adults were spending with friends decreased by 20 hours a month and the amount of time that adults were spending by themselves increased by 24 hours a month. And obviously, and when Ymir Bell alluded to this too, that this has been accelerated by the pandemic where people were spending just more time indoor, but this is a, this seems to be like a long, long trend that was just accelerated as opposed to just something that crept up during COVID. And so when you have more and more people that are spending time alone, like the, the pro of, technology during the pandemic, Ricky, was that like, we could text each other and we could FaceTime each other and we could get on and do a Zoom together. And like, like, that's what we did with our friends. Like we played cards and we just like watched games together. And it was like, it was beautiful because in this terrible situation, technology gave us the ability to connect with people. But on the other hand, it's also limiting our ability to connect with people. And I think what the the data he cited was that people that spend over two hours on social media were like, 30% 30% less likely to spend time with their friends as opposed to people that spend like less than 30 minutes. And then Renny Rebell is telling us about p- kids that are spending four, eight, 12 hours on social media. Like, uh, yeah. So, but it's just, I like it when the U S surgeon general is sounding the alarm about this issue, this, this is something that should be kind of forefront of all of our consciousness. Yeah. It, and, and sort of the links between loneliness and other diseases that, you know, may or may not be mental health related that the like physical ailments or like life expectancy, if you're lonely versus not so much lower, obviously, you know, the causation correlation problem still exists there, but it's not, um, there is, there appears to be some kind of a connection. I thought something else that you said like earlier um, was was really well said and kind of I feel like an important piece of this social media equation is that for all of the harmful things that social media can do in so many ways, especially for people who live in small kind of like more isolated communities, is yeah. show kids that like, hey, there are other even if I don't see them like in my 10 group of friends, there are other people like me and there are other people like me who are successful in the world. But then Wendy Morbell was going into like, hey, if I'm looking at cat videos today, chances are I wake up tomorrow and I pull up my Facebook or whatever and I'll see a cat video if I look at something, you know, so it's it's a, it's a little bit like personally driven, but it's so hard to know how you're driving it and how to know when it's driving you when like you see one thing and you click on something that's related to it and it's creating this sort of momentum for you that's almost showing you that like hey this is the only other thing out there and obviously you know we've heard of people getting radicalized online or whatever but also thoughts of suicide and all of these things seem to be in in the way that like social media can like amplify the good things it can also really really do this same thing for the bad for the bad things and it's like Clearly there is benefit here. So we don't want to outlaw it, but like, how do we harness it for, for good? And how do we incentivize technology companies to focus on that? Because it doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to spend less time on it, but just like the news media that, Hey, things that are awful, things that are bad, things that are scary, get the most traction. I'm like, it doesn't take a genius to understand that, Hey, in social media, it's probably pretty similar because it's an, just another type of media and all. And if the eyes, if the idea is to get eyes on it and sell advertisement, then we know how to do that, or we know the easiest route to do that. And so yeah. that's, that's what makes it tricky. Totally fair. Right. And you could think that, yeah, people don't want 
you obviously don't want your customers, your consumers spending less time on your product. But at the same time, like there's probably a segment, it might be a small segment, but that are not on social media because of this very reason where if they felt like, hey, my kids were exposed to just more safe content and that there were strict controls around not only what they saw, but how long they could spend on it, maybe I'd be more willing to let my kid on it or even be on it myself. Yeah, I, I mean, it's... I agree. I don't want to ban these things because it's been one, they're here to stay. It's like realistically, like this is just the world we live in now for better, for worse. But two, like they have brought a ton of great things, like social media and media in general and interconnectedness has brought like so many great um, things to the world. But it's, I like what Wendy Morbell said of like, it starts at home. Like individuals have to take responsibility, parents in particular, but everyone, like even as like young adults, we have to take responsibility for ourselves here. You can't just be like, oh, damn TikTok again. Like, come on. Uh, but at the same time, I do think like pairing the personal responsibility with some legislative efforts in some market-based efforts, like you said, to incentivize these companies. I think like if, if we're doing all of those things, that I would feel better about that. It would feel at least like we're we're trying to make progress. And again, it starts with talking about these things, but it has to be something more than just talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, she highlighted a couple interesting things that I didn't know about that. Like in Europe, there's some regulation that forces Photoshop pictures to disclaim that like, Hey, this isn't real. This is, this is Photoshop. Like that, that seems like a very easy step that at least like very clearly shows people, Hey, this is this, could have been real or this is very clearly not um uh, yeah I, I i think there are there are are obviously things that we can do and and also as these like algorithms get smarter like it feels like hopefully they can be like all right yeah this person is clearly interested in this area but they've been down here for an hour like yeah, let's right. say hey maybe yeah, yeah, let's look at something happier, whatever it is that um, that media companies need to do. And this, and maybe I'll leave you with this this question as we wrap up this discussion. Um, Google, I believe, is being sued because uh, YouTube um, had, uh, or 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 um, I think it was a a um, a terrorist attack in France that ended up killing um, a, a young American woman who was studying abroad there. And the parents are suing Google because um, this person uh, was was possibly radicalized through YouTube videos. And what in the past has always been the defense is that like what we're we are providing the town square. And so what people say in the town square is on them. Um, you can't sue the social media company. But the idea that the parents are are pursuing is that like. Not exactly, because your town square is like a curated one that that follows your algorithm. So if this guy maybe searched for his first like terrorist video and was shown 10 more because your algorithm said that here are, you know, you like this one, you probably like this one, too. Is there an avenue for that? So I'm I'm very interested in seeing how that turns out. It's clear that like. I, I think a lot of these companies are looking for some guidance too, like what, you know, what should we be doing? How should we not be limiting free speech, but also, you know, being able to maintain our business model. So yeah. Curious if you have any thoughts on that or if we call it there. Well, well, two things there. One, we talked about that case. It's, it's Gonzalez v. Google um, on episode 68 with a constitutional law expert and professor over uh, in California, Barry McDonald. And so that's a, we talked about five cases in that and with the SCOTUS decision starting to trick come out in the next month, um, it's, it's an episode worth listening to if people haven't listened to it, especially if you just heard what Ricky said, it's, there's some like complex legal issues that we, Ricky and I could hit the surface of, but we had a constitutional law expert talk about them well worth that listen. So a little plug for the program, but also I do think like that last thing you said about people looking for guidance, like we, this, the social media in, I mean, the internet came along and it was just like the wild, wild west. And then people were like, all right, well, maybe we should try to regulate this a little bit. And then social media came out. It's the same thing. And it's uh, it's one of those things where, especially this kind of circles back to when we have so many octogenarian lawmakers. Like if you and I have a hard time wrapping our head around some of these issues, like what, what, what do you do when you're 60, 70, 80, 90 years old? Uh, like how are you going to solve problems like this? But I, I think there are people that are like, whether it was 
Jack, the the founder of Twitter, or there there was some we talked about when we talked about Elon taking over Twitter that uh, had founded Reddit and was just like, yeah, I didn't I didn't know how to do it. I wanted this to be an open space, but then when I saw like this town, how my open space was corrupted, like with all these, I didn't want that my platform to have those ideas on it. Like, how do I draw that line? And everyone's just trying to make that decision for themselves, where it's like, give me a little guidance, right? And then and then Ricky, I can say it's not me censoring you it's that's what i have to do that's the law as opposed to just like me trying to make the best decision i can and then everyone's like well twitter is censoring republicans or you know facebook's allowing the, the, these things to happen you know it's like it's just a bunch of people trying to do their best they can with no real guidance so i think that's fair and yeah i think that's a really interesting point yeah yeah i mean in terms of you know we we always talk about where where do you start on some of these huge issues and yeah. Social media definitely seems to be one of them. I think it, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this just evolves over the next 10, 10 or 15 years, but it's clear that people are now very aware of it. Um, yeah. And so the, you know, research like Wendy's and, and, and other studies like that, hopefully will give us some, some proper policy proposals and guidelines and things like that, that we can improve, improve our current situation. But yeah, absolutely. And so thanks again to Wendy Rebell for uh, joining us and providing us with so much insight into this very complex topic. Uh, thank you to everyone that listens as always. And Ricky, even as I, I was doing some of this reading about loneliness and about how the pandemic kind of accelerates some of these trends about people feeling anxious about reaching out to old friends and connections. If if you're out there and you're listening to that one, Ricky and I are always here to talk. <laughs> we love to talk. But also like it's one of those things that made me even like in one of the articles, it was like an op-ed about some data. And it was just like, what you should do right now is, is text your friend or call your friend or something like that. And it's like, that's, that. I think the, the line was exactly like, it starts with taking care of those closest to us, right? Like this is a societal issue, but there are probably all people in our lives that we haven't talked to, whether it's our fault or their fault or a combination of both or no one's fault. It's just like time gets away from people. And so uh, this is maybe in a small way, if you're like, well, I can't pass legislation. I can't change what the social media companies are doing. But what can you do? You can you know, reach out to a, a friend. And again, Ricky and I are always here if uh, people want to reach out to us. That's true. I mean, once we start talking, it's hard to hard to get. <laughs> yeah, you might you might regret it, yeah. but don't uh, don't hesitate. Yeah. All right. All right, buddy. I appreciate you and our friendship, and always getting to talk, buddy. Always. All right. Till next time. Yeah. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands And folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share That American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share out American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster 
Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find it Change the lines here Folks with different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lives had Folks with different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz